nations fall. Empires fall. It is a brutal fact of history. And we forget this fact. We forget it often. Uh, Most of us here today have known immense stability in our lifetimes. Sure, we have have felt rumblings. Uh, We have been shaken to the core through seriously unsettling events. But for most of us, we have not experienced, personally experienced, the actual collapse of a nation, the nation we're living in. Because we have not personally experienced the collapse of a nation, we tend to conceive of a, that reality as only kind of a theory. Uh, for us, for most of us, the fall of a nation or the collapse of a nation is uh, just an academic exercise. Today, as Christians, our fundamental identity is not tied to our earthly citizenship. As Christians, our fundamental identity is not tied to our earthly citizenship. Our fundamental identity is tied to the Lord Jesus Christ. And our ultimate citizenship, as the Scriptures teach us, is in heaven. Remembering this truth was much more difficult for the Old Testament people of God. Their identity was in large part connected to the fact that God had formed them as children of Abraham. Their identity was in large part connected to the fact that God had organized them into 12 tribes. Their identity was in large part connected to the common experience of being called out of slavery in Egypt. Their identity was in large part connected to a location, specifically the gift of land that God had given them in Canaan. Their identity was in large part connected to the reality of God setting an authority over all of them, to to rule over them when He gave them a king. This morning, as we study 2 Kings chapter 23, beginning in verse 31, stretching to the end of the book, chapter 25, verse 30, we see that we see all of that almost completely wiped out. Uh, This morning, we see the utter collapse of the nation of Judah. As we end our study of the book of Kings, it's as if the author says, Judah has met her end. Well, to be fair, he says Judah has met her end, but that's not actually the end of the story. This is what we have the privilege of thinking about today, the fall of Judah and the faithfulness of God. If you haven't done so already, please turn in your Bibles to 2 Kings chapter 23, verse 31. That's where we're going to begin. If you're using one of the Bibles provided, you can find the passage on page 330. As we turn our attention to the end of 2 Kings, we must remember that the book chronicles a descent from the golden age of Solomon uh, to Israel's division into two kingdoms, the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah, and its descent into the grueling exile, the grueling age of the exile. And today, we reach the exile of Judah. The northern kingdom of Israel has already been carried off into exile by Assyria, but now we have to examine the exile of the southern kingdom of Judah, their removal from the land. As we look at 2 Kings chapter 23, verse 31 to the end of the book, we're looking at the last four kings of Judah. The author works through them in an interesting pattern. It's a double uh, three-month, 11-year 
pattern. A king reigns for three months, and then the next reigns for 11 years. And then king number three reigns for three months. And king number four reigns for 11 years. In your bulletin, I provided you with a, a couple of notes for the sermon. One concerns kind of the, the total outline of Old Testament history. Um, another is the specific chronology we come across in these chapters with dates. Another is that double 3 and 11 pattern. And the final one, which is probably the one you're going to want to pay the most attention to, is the outline for the sermon. Today we have kind of the, the painful task of watching a nation unravel. Judah and the people of Israel in a larger sense are in effect uncreated. They're decreated. The people of Judah are systematically dismantled as a nation. By the time we reach the end of the narrative, the people of Judah are enslaved in a foreign nation or have returned to Egypt. It's as if the, the formation of the nation, the exodus, the conquest, the establishment of the monarchy, the building of the temple, and the expansion of the borders never happened. In short, God forsakes Judah. But, and this is a big but, God does not forsake His promises. God does not forsake His promises to judge, and He does not forsake His promises to save. So if you wanted a single sentence to kind of summarize the message of these last chapters of 2 Kings, this would be it. God forsakes Judah, but He does not forsake His promises. We're going to study these chapters kind of thematically. We'll ask and answer three questions. Why does Judah fall? That's question number one. How does Judah fall? That's question number two. And what hope remains? That's question number three. Those three questions will form the outline of the rest of the sermon. And since these chapters chronicle the dismantling of Judah, we'll look at those elements of kind of dissolution as they emerge actually multiple times in the text. Um, but we need to start with the why. Nations fall for a reason, and Judah falls for a reason. And the author of Kings, he's, he's more than willing to explain to us why Judah falls. So let's turn to ask and answer our first question. Why does Judah fall? The, the author of Kings, he gives two simple answers to this question. Why does Judah fall? First, because godliness is gone. In its final 22 years, the nation is led by four godless men. For godless kings. You need to see this for yourself in the text. So take a look at 2 Kings chapter 23, beginning there in verse 31. Let me just read 31 and 32, those verses. Jehoahaz was 23 years old when he began to reign. And he reigned three months in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Hamutual, the daughter of Jeremiah of Libna. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, according to all that his fathers had done. There it is, you see it right there at the end of verse 32. Jehoahaz did what was evil in the sight of the Lord according to all that his fathers had done. And in the book of Kings, we've come to learn that what this means is that the king did not obey the commands of the Lord, of Yahweh. It means that he worshipped other gods. He put his trust in other people and powers. And the, the next man up is really no better. Consider what we read of Jehoiakim in 2 Kings chapter 23, verse 37. Verse 37 of chapter 23, And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, according to all that his fathers had done. Jehoahaz's three-month reign of evil is followed by 11 years of evil in Jehoiakim. 
And the next king, Jehoiachin, also reigns for three months. And we receive his evaluation in chapter 24, verse 9. So skip down to chapter 24, verse 9. This is what we read there. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, according to all his father had done. I, I, I bet you can guess what the final king before Judah's fall was like. Zedekiah, he reigned for 11 years. Take a look at his evaluation in 2 Kings chapter 24, verse 19. Or if you don't want to look at it, let's play fill in the blank. I'll read a portion, and you go ahead and you fill in the blank what comes next. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, according to all that Jehoiakim had done. Rebellion is redundant, right? And all godliness is gone. Now, we must be careful about our applications here. Like, what does this mean for, for me? The church of the Lord Jesus Christ is not Old Testament Israel or Judah. And yet, like the Old Testament people of God, one of the things God's people need most is godliness among her leaders. It's no small accident that character is at the center of qualifications for elders. Elders must be godly. And we ought to praise God that he has given us William and Derek and Jed. They are godly men. And we ought to pray that all of the elders of our church would pursue godliness and continue to pursue godliness. But we ought to pray that the Lord be pleased to continue to raise up godly men to lead this church. Godly leaders are no guarantee that the church will stand. God, in his providence, may close the doors of churches with faithful leaders. Sadly, I have heard too many stories of this happening. And yet, it is almost a certainty that churches with ungodly leaders practically cease to be churches. They may keep their doors open, but there is a real sense in which churches with ungodly leaders fall and cease to exist to be churches. Maybe they're perhaps more like social clubs not carrying forward the mission of declaring the good news of Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 10, that it is through the church that the manifold wisdom of God might be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. The ministry of the church is central to God's mission to the world. Just as much as Christians and church members need their pastors and leaders to be holy, to be godly, so do those pastors and church leaders need their sheep to be holy, to be godly. We help spur one another on toward love and good deeds, toward godliness. So Christian, Christian, church member, member of Arlington Baptist, it is important. Your godliness is important to the witness of God's wisdom in Jesus Christ. Your individual pursuit of the Lord is important to the church's witness and our witness as a whole and together to the wisdom of God in Jesus Christ. Godliness has left the throne of Judah and Yahweh told his people that for their evil, for their ungodliness, he would punish the nation. This is the second kind of why of Judah's fall. Punishment was promised. But we get an explicit reminder of the promised punishment during the reign of Jehoiakim. So, there in chapter 24, look at or listen to chapter 24, verses 2 to 4. Chapter 24, verse 2. And the Lord sent against him, that's Jehoiakim, 
The Lord sent against him bands of the Chaldeans and bands of the Syrians and bands of the Moabites and bands of the Ammonites and sent them against Judah to destroy it. Now look closely. According to the word of the Lord that he spoke by his servants, the prophets. Surely this came upon Judah at the command of the Lord to remove them out of his sight for the sins of Manasseh according to all that he had done and also for the innocent blood that he had shed. For he filled Jerusalem with innocent blood and the Lord would not pardon. Those are sobering words, aren't they? The Lord would not pardon. Evil Wickedness and ungodliness must be punished. Yahweh promised that He would punish Judah for the sins of Manasseh. And here we see He is keeping His promise. It was promised in 1 Kings chapter 9, verses 6-9. to It was promised by the prophets throughout the book of Kings. But it was also promised by Moses all the way back in Leviticus chapter 26 in Deuteronomy 28. With godliness gone from the throne... Yahweh pressed forward with the punishment that He promised. Yahweh almost can't take it anymore. Right? He has waited for the nation's repentance long enough. And they have passed the point of no return. God's indignation against Judah's wickedness demands His just punishment. And this is what the author of Kings says in 2 Kings chapter 24, verse 20. Verse 20 of chapter 24. For because of the anger of the Lord, it came to the point in Jerusalem and Judah that he cast them out from his presence. Those two are sobering words. He cast them out from his presence. Could there be any worse punishment? In, in this historical context, during Zedekiah's reign, it means that God caused the nation to fall and he removed Judah from the land. This, of course, is merely prototypical of a deeper reality. It points us forward to something Larger. What happens physically and temporally here with the punishment of the nation is prototypical of what happens spiritually and eternally to those who rebel against the living God. God, because He is holy, must punish all wickedness, ungodliness, and sin. The nation of Judah falls principally because godliness is gone from the throne. And, as one believer said, the leaders Yahweh gives a nation may be part of His judgment on that nation. Make no mistake, the Lord was active in this history too. He brought it about as we read in verses 2-4 to four of this chapter. The Lord sent the bands of the Chaldeans and the Syrians and the Moabites and the Ammonites against Judah to destroy it. Be warned, if you war with God... He will war with you. And that is not a fight anyone can win. Yet, this is a comfort to God's people. For we know that He will punish all godlessness and wickedness in the end. This is a comfort. While the New Testament people of God do not experience the wrath of God against our sin, in the sense that we do not experience condemnation, we sometimes do experience the chastisement of God. Sometimes our Father brings or sends, to use the word of our text, 
Sometimes our Father sends suffering trials into our lives to discipline us as His children. Hebrews chapter 12 teaches us that this is actually a sign of His love for us. He is training us so that we might yield the peaceful fruit of righteousness. The Apostle Peter speaks of trials as refining us, as purifying us. And although all of this is difficult, it's difficult to suffer, isn't it? It's, it's difficult to undergo a trial. No one wants that. We must remember that it is chastisement, not condemnation that we're receiving from His hand. We must remember that it's actually for our good so that we may share in His holiness. He is not forsaking us as Judah, as He did Judah. Rather, He is drawing near to us and calling us to draw near to Him. Christian, don't despise your difficulty. Christian, do not despise your difficulty. See in it God's design. He is drawing you near to Him and making you more like the Lord Jesus Christ. Godliness is gone in Judah. And in response to that absence of righteousness, Yahweh brought about His promised punishment. That's the why. That's why Judah falls. But how? How does Judah fall? That's the second question we want to ask and answer from our text. How does a nation unravel? What elements are involved? A nation unravels through the winnowing of its wealth, through the crushing of its capital, and through the dislocation of its people. So let's begin to ask and answer, how does Judah fall? One step in the, the, the dissolution of Judah, the uncreating of Judah, is the winnowing, winnowing of its wealth, kind of the removing of its riches. So scroll back up to 2 Kings chapter 23, verses 33 to 35. Here we're back in the reign of the first of the four kings at the end of this book. And watch what happens to Jehoahaz. Watch what happens to the nation's wealth. 2 Kings 23, 33 to 35. And Pharaoh Necho put him in bonds at Riblah in the land of Hamath, that he might not reign in Jerusalem, and laid on the land a tribute of a hundred talents of silver and a talent of gold. And Pharaoh Necho made Eliakim, the son of Josiah, king in the place of Josiah his father, and changed his name to Jehoiakim. But he took Jehoahaz away, and he came to Egypt and died there. And Jehoiakim gave the silver and the gold to Pharaoh, but he taxed the land to give the money according to the command of Pharaoh. He exacted the silver and the gold of the people of the land from everyone according to his assessment to give it to Pharaoh Necho. Jehoahaz is taken captive by Pharaoh, kind of back in Egypt once again. Pharaoh then requires Judah to pay tribute to him. And this was an arrangement that happened often in the ancient Near East. Uh, Pharaoh makes Judah his servant for a fee. Pharaoh will protect Judah from other nations so long as Judah pays up. In order to make sure that he gets his money, Pharaoh installs a king favorable to him and totally subject to him. This is 
seen even in his uh, changing Eliakim's name to Jehoiakim. In order to continue this arrangement, Jehoiakim had to take money from everyone through the, in the land through taxes. Now, I'm not making any political points here. I'm just telling you how Judah lost, lost its wealth. They had to pay taxes, which then went off to pay a foreign nation. This is not the only way that Judah's wealth is winnowed. It was winnowed through Babylon coming and taking what they wanted. If you skip down to chapter 24, verses 10 to 13, you'll see that during the reign of Jehoiachin, Nebuchadnezzar, he sieged Jerusalem, which led to its surrender, which led to Nebuchadnezzar taking all the treasure he wanted. So listen to 2 Kings chapter 24, verses 10 to 13. At that time, the servants of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came up to Jerusalem and the city was besieged. And Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to the city while his servants were besieging it. And Jehoiachin, king of Judah, gave himself up to the king of Babylon, himself and his mother and his servants and his officials and his palace officials. The king of Babylon took him prisoner in the eighth year of his reign and carried off all the treasures of the house of the Lord Yahweh and the treasures of the king's house and cut in pieces all the vessels of gold in the temple of the Lord, which Solomon, king of Israel, had made as the Lord had foretold. God told His people that their wealth would be winnowed precisely in this way a few chapters back in 2 Kings chapter 20, verse 17. When Hezekiah, who was king at that time, he, showed, he foolishly showed the king of Babylon, or the envoy of Babylon, all the treasures of his kingdom. This winnowing of wealth in chapter 24, verses 10 to 13 should come as no surprise to us as readers. That was in 597 B.C., what we just read. That happened in 597 B.C. But then, roughly 10 years later, associated with the fall of Jerusalem, in 587 B.C., Nebuchadnezzar, he kind of came back around a second time to take the remaining wealth from Judah. Move your eyes over to chapter 25 and take a look at verses 13 to 17. Look at what Nebuchadnezzar takes. And the pillars of bronze that were in the house of the Lord, and the stands of the bronze sea that were in the house of the Lord, the Chaldeans broke in pieces and carried the bronze to Babylon. And they took away the pots and the shovels and the snuffers and the dishes for incense, and all the vessels of bronze used in the temple's service, the firepans also, and the bowls. What was of gold, the captain of the guard took away as gold, and what was of silver, as silver. As for the two pillars, the one, uh, the one sea and the stands that Solomon had made for the house of the Lord, the bronze of all these vessels was beyond weight. The height of the one pillar was 18 cubits, and on it was a capital of bronze. The height of the capital was three cubits. A lattice work and pomegranates, all of bronze, were all around the capital. And the second pillar had the same with the lattice work. Just pause there. Or earlier in the week, someone asked, why do we get all this detail of what Nebuchadnezzar took? Why does the author give us so much detail? Well, he, he gives us so many details because he went into so much detail when, he, when Solomon built the temple. and He recorded it there. The author of Kings wants to show us that Judah's wealth was winnowed down to absolutely nothing. And what, what makes these verses so very painful to read is that this was God's house. 
Right? This is where God made His presence known to His people. This is where He heard their prayers. And He received their praises. This place was so special to God's people. And as Nebuchadnezzar's men hack it up, they hack it up, these large pillars, as they hack it up and as they move it out, it feels like the heart of the nation is being removed. In a, in a single stroke, wealth is winnowed, but worship, worship is also removed as the temple is brought to nothing. How should we think about our, our own wealth? You know, many cre- crave financial security. The, the, the Bible teaches us in the life of Job and in the history of Israel what we're seeing here. That there's no such thing as financial security. That is, in essence, an illusion. The Lord can take it in a moment. We, we might be tempted to think that, that this doesn't apply to us. But we should consider how much our identity might be actually wrapped up in our stuff. Right? If, if you lost your house or your car or your variety of clothes, your ability to pay for a certain hairstyle, would you, would you still feel like yourself? Children, youth, young adults, just, just think about your, yourself for a moment. Uh, when a, a, a sibling, uh, or perhaps if you're older and you're in college or a young adult, what if a bad roommate kind of uh, borrows your stuff without asking? Um, do you respond in anger? Why is that? Is it possible that, that we view those things as defining a portion of our identity? This says something about who I am. Uh, the, the Bible teaches us that whatever wealth we have is not actually ours to begin with. And it's not central to our identity. In the end, we're stewards of gifts and resources. God has given us resources and we, we use them for the sake of His glory. Uh, a handful of, of uh, brothers from the church thought about this during our, our men's breakfast this past Friday while we were reading Uh, David Gibson's book, Living Life Backwards, about money, this is what David Gibson writes. He says, it's possible to know the price of everything but the value of nothing. If the love of money is a root of evil, then Ecclesiastes, and indeed the whole Bible, has a beautifully simple solution. Here's how to sever the root, stop the rot, and kill the evil. Spend your money on others. Give it away. Do it regularly, gladly, generously, and you will be happy. More than just being happy, you will glorify God. You'll glorify God because you are showing that your true wealth is a wealth that cannot be reduced or winnowed. It can't be lost. Right? In Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 and 20, Jesus said, Do not lay up for yourself treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourself treasures in heaven, where neither moth rust nor destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. Being able to, to generously share is a strong indication that your inheritance, you have an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. First Peter chapter 1, verse 4. This winnowing of wealth is closely related to the crushing of Judah's capital. In fact, the two cannot really be separated. So, so let's read 
of the crushing of Judah's capital. Find 2 Kings chapter 25, verse 1. And, and as we read 2 Kings chapter 25, uh, verses 1 to 12, remember, this is occurring in 587 B.C. When does Jerusalem fall, finally? Falls in 587 B.C. Verse 1 of chapter 25. And in the ninth year of his reign, in the tenth month, on the tenth day of the month, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came with all his army against Jerusalem and laid siege to it. And they built siege works all around it. So the city was besieged till the eleventh year of King Zedekiah. On the ninth month of the fourth month, the famine was so severe in the city that there was no food for the people of the land. Then a breach was made in the city, and all the men of war fled by night by the way of the gate between the two walls, by the king's garden, and the Chaldeans were around the city. And they went in the direction of the Arabah, but the army of the Chaldeans pursued the king and overtook him in the plains of Jericho, and all his army was scattered from him. Then they captured the king and brought him up to the king of Babylon at Riblah, and they passed sentence on him. They slaughtered the sons of Zedekiah before his eyes and put out the eyes of Zedekiah and bound him in chains and took him to Babylon. In the fifth month, on the seventh day of the month, that was the 19th year of King Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, Nebuzaradan, the captain of the bodyguard, a servant of the king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and he burned the house of the Lord and the king's house. And all the houses of Jerusalem, every great house he burned down. And all the army of the Chaldeans, who were with the captain of the guard, broke down the walls of Jerusalem. How can a nation be led and governed when its capital is crushed and, as we see here, charred, burned? All of this occurs... Because Zedekiah wanted to get out from under the thumb of the king of Babylon. He no longer wanted to be a, a vassal or a servant of Nebuchadnezzar. This rebellion aroused Nebuchadnezzar's anger. And Nebuchadnezzar laid siege to the capital for two years. And as the city was surrounded, famine and starvation set in. When the situation became unbearable, Zedekiah... And the men of war tried to escape. They, they left behind the vulnerable. The, the men of war, the men who were able to protect, left behind the vulnerable. Talk about selfish. They tried to flee, but they were found. Did you notice where they were found? They were found in the plains of Jericho. This is terribly ironic, isn't it? In their flight, they are found at the place of Israel's first victory in the promised land. Right? The, the very first place of victory becomes the last place of the nation's defeat. The last thing that Zedekiah sees before his eyes are gouged out is the death of his sons. The last thing he sees, the thing he will forever remember. This crushing of Judah's capital and crown, in a sense, was cruel. But that's not all. For part of the crushing of the capital is the actual crushing of the capital. 
In verses 8 to 12 of chapter 25, the author methodically works through the destruction of the Lord's house, the king's house, and all the great houses in the capital city of Judah. He paints a picture of Nebuchadnezzar's right-hand man supervising all of this. We're going to do that, we're going to do that, we're going to take care of that. And then we, we get to the end. He finally tears down the walls of Jerusalem. The, the Babylonians, Chaldeans sometimes, they're, well, the Babylonians, they, they, they wanted everyone to know that, that no defenses, no fortified cities, no walls would stop them. They wanted to, uh, they wanted to when they wanted to, they would, they would crush you. They wanted to make sure that not only you knew that you could not defend yourself, but they wanted everybody else in the world to know that too. They wanted to intimidate others. When they wanted to, they would even carry you out of your land. Uh, a nation unravels through the winnowing of its wealth and the crushing of its capital, but ultimately a nation is made up of a people. And that final thread is, is pulled for the unraveling of Judah in the dislocation of its people. Or to put it in the terms that so often used of the people of God, sheep, right? Sheep are scattered. We've seen the, the reduction of Judah's riches, the crushing of Judah's capital, but we now need to turn and see the scattering of its sheep. We've already seen how Jehoahaz was put in prison by the king of Egypt in 2 Kings chapter 23, verse 33. But that's really small potatoes, right? That's just one man, one person. During Jehoiachin's reign, many sheep were scattered. So, so go back to 2 Kings chapter 24, verse 14. 2 Kings chapter 24, verse 14. Here we're in the year of 597 B.C. We're about to read uh, about the first deportation conducted by Nebuchadnezzar. And in the, the preceding verses of those which we're about to read, Nebuchadnezzar has just done kind of his first cash grab in Judah. And then we read this in 2 Kings chapter 24, beginning there in verse 14. He carried away all Jerusalem and all the officials, and all the mighty men of valor, 10,000 captives, and all the craftsmen and the smiths. None remained except the poorest people of the land. And he carried away Jehoiachin to Babylon, the king's mother, the king's wives, his officials, and the chief men of the land, and he took into captivity from Jerusalem to Babylon. And the king of Babylon brought captive to Babylon all the men of valor, 7,000. And the craftsmen and the metal workers, 1,000, all of them strong and fit for war. Pause there, right? Nebuchadnezzar, he winnowed the wealth of Judah by taking away those who held wealth and those who could produce wealth. Not only that, he scooped up the warriors, he scooped up the royalty, the nation's administrative officials, and he brought them to Babylon. Right? He dismantled their government, but effectively sheep were removed from their pasture so to speak, as they were moved from their garden land to another land. And this will come into play later, so, so just take note now. Nebuchadnezzar, he removed Jehoiachin from the throne and brought him to prison in Babylon. He's going to stay there for a while, and we're going to come back to him at the very end. In the meantime, we're told in 2 Kings chapter 24, verse 17, that Nebuchadnezzar, he installs Zedekiah as king. Zedekiah serves... Nebuchadnezzar faithfully for nine years, but then hoping to escape his ruthless grasp, he rebels against Nebuchadnezzar, right? He, he doesn't pay the tribute required to the king of Babylon. And this, uh, if you recall, it didn't go well for Jehoiakim, right? It didn't go well for Jehoiakim, who rebelled as well. It just doesn't go well when uh, 
these kings rebel. But what have we learned from the book of Kings? Rebellion is redundant. Depravity is dull. It just does the same thing over and over again. And as we've already seen, Zedekiah's rebellion against Nebuchadnezzar, it brings about the crushing of the capital and really the second and final deportation in 587 B.C. And in 2 Kings chapter 25, verses 11 and 12, Nebuchadnezzar goes one step further. After tearing down the walls, notice what takes place. 2 Kings 25, verses 11 and 12. And the rest of the people who were left in the city and the deserters who had deserted to the king of Babylon, together with the rest of the multitude, Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, carried into exile. But the captain of the guard left some of the poorest of the land to be vine dressers and plowmen. In the main, uh, Nebuchadnezzar and his captain carried off the majority of the citizens of Jerusalem, like he did really in the first deportation. He left the poorest of the land. And after stealing the wealth out of Jerusalem's temple, which, he, which we considered earlier, the author tells us in verses 18 to 21 of chapter 25 that Nebuchadnezzar put to death some of those he had taken captive. Either way, the, the author's reflections on Nebuchadnezzar's deportation of Judah's citizens ends with these words, these words in verse 21. So, or in this way, Judah was taken into exile out of its land. Now, it would have been enough for the author to say, so Judah was taken into exile. But the author had to make sure we felt the pain of this reality by not just saying, so Judah was taken into exile, but Judah was taken into exile out of its land. And here we're reminded from the language of Leviticus and Deuteronomy of the covenant curses. The curses of the covenant have fallen upon Judah. But this is not actually the last scattering of sheep in these chapters. We find the final scattering in verses 22 to 26. Having winnowed its wealth and crushed its capital and scattered its sheep, Nebuchadnezzar, he appoints a man by the name of Gedaliah to serve as governor. It's his job to rule over the people who remained in Judah. Gedaliah plays kind of the role of a puppet. He does whatever Nebuchadnezzar says. He assures the remaining people of Judah that if they serve Babylon faithfully, they will know peace and happiness. Well, in time, a few royalists, some uh, members of the Davidic household, the, the Messianic line, are able to uh, assassinate Gedaliah at Mitzvah. And consider what happens next in 2 Kings 25 verse 26. 2 Kings 25 verse 26. Then all the people, both small and great, and the captains of the forces arose and went to Egypt, for they were afraid of the Chaldeans. In fear, they flee to Egypt. Wait, think about that. Where are God's people? They're scattered. Some are in Babylon. And the final few are now in Egypt. And with this mention of Egypt, it feels as though the whole enterprise of forming a nation, fleeing Pharaoh, finding a land, founding a monarchy, was all for naught. Perhaps that's what early believers felt when the church in Jerusalem was scattered due to persecution. Was all that happened after Jesus' resurrection from the dead and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit at, Jer at Pentecost, was that all for naught? 
After all, Jesus had formed a new people by calling 12 apostles in the likeness of the 12 tribes. Jesus preached that God's kingdom had come and that He was that King. Jesus had rescued people from slavery to sin. Jesus had promised His people a heavenly land and secured it. Jesus had been crowned as King on His cross and openly vindicated in His resurrection. And now God's people, they had been scattered. Was this all for naught? We must ever remember that the scattering of Jesus' sheep had and has a different purpose than the scattering of God's people here in 2 Kings. The scattering of God's sheep now has an evangelistic purpose, not a disciplinary purpose. We are, to use the words of the Apostle Peter, we are exiles. Yes, we are exiles from our home and heavenly country, but we are also ambassadors, to use the words of the Apostle Paul. We have been scattered, or, or perhaps better yet, sent. Sent to the nations to proclaim the pardon of the King who has won peace between God and men. We, we must be realistic about the difficulties of our exile, and we must be diligent in our duty as ambassadors to announce the King's proclamation and pardon. These twin realities in our lives we must balance and hold to while we wait for the return of the King. We're exiles and we're ambassadors. We're not home and we're sent out. We have that hope that we will come into our home. But what hope remained for those who were first reading the book of Kings? What hope did they have? Judah fell because of ungodliness and because God keeps His promises. Judah fell through the winnowing of its wealth, the crushing of its capital, and the scattering of its sheep. But what hope remains? That's the final question we need to ask and answer. And let's look at the final verses of the book. 2 Kings chapter 25, verses 27 to 30. Here we find the answer of what hope remains. Verse 27. And in the 37th year of the exile of Jehoiachin, king of Judah, in the 12th month, on the 27th day of the month, evil Merodach, king of Babylon, in the year that he began to reign, graciously freed Jehoiachin, king of Judah, from prison. And he spoke kindly to him and gave him a seat above the seats of the kings who were with him in Babylon. So Jehoiachin put off his prison garments, and every day of his life he dined regularly at the king's table. And for his allowance, a regular allowance was given him by the king, according to his daily needs, as long as he lived. What hope remains? I think that we have to listen closely to the author of Kings to hear the hope that he holds out to God's people. I mean, notice... Notice that Jehoiachin has been in exile for 37 years. What do we read about Jehoiachin? You recall he was imprisoned in 597 B.C. when he attempted to uh, rebel against Nebuchadnezzar. And while he was in prison, um, another king reigns in Judah. But, but do, you see, do you see what it says there in verse 27? 
What does the author tell us about Jehoiachin? Or, or more specifically, how does he refer to Jehoiachin? The author of Kings refers to Jehoiachin as what? As the king of Judah. And he does it not just once, but twice. He wants you to pick up on this. But Jehoiachin's no king, right? I mean, he hasn't been king for quite some time. Another one reigned on the throne after him. He's no king. Well, he is a king according to the author of Kings. And if anyone knows how to spot a king, it's got to be the author of Kings, right? But he's a prisoner. Well, he was a prisoner up until he was graciously freed. Aren't those sweet words? Jehoiachin didn't deserve to be set free. He rebelled against Babylon, but he was shown grace. And by the king of Babylon, no less. It's here that we must remember the king of Babylon is not ultimately in control of history. God is in control of history. He is the ultimate king ruling over all the affairs of men. It was Yahweh who sent Babylon to winnow the wealth of Judah, crush its capital, scatter its sheep. The king of Babylon graciously freed King Jehoiachin only because the great king Yahweh divinely ordained and orchestrated this release. Jehoiachin wasn't just called a king by the author of kings. He wasn't just graciously freed by the king of Babylon. He was treated as the rightful king of Judah by the king of Babylon. Did you notice that in the text? Jehoiachin was given a seat above the seat of who? Of kings. The various lands that really the, the king of Babylon had conquered. He's given a, a special place of honor in this kind of royal court. But within that royal court, Jehoiachin was given the highest seat. Jehoiachin, when he put off his prison garments, he left behind all the visible trappings of a defeated monarch. And he was now welcomed as a guest at the king's table. This Gentile king is showing the kind of kindness that David showed to crippled Mephibosheth in 2 Samuel chapter 9. He is showing Jehoiachin the kind of kindness that Pharaoh, that Pharaoh showed to Joseph when he was in prison. Jehoiachin has everything he needs and he is the king above all the kings of the Babylonian court. Now, Having looked at the author's kind of brush strokes closely, just step back and look at the larger picture. It feels as if we're reading the story of Joseph all over again. Which means what? What happened after Joseph? What was the next major event in Israel's history? Go on, you can answer. What was the next major event in Israel's history after Joseph? The Exodus. God heard the cries of his people in Egypt under the power of another ruler and nation. He no doubt hears the cries of his people in exile. The author of Kings has primed his readers with the hope of another exodus. But he has also paired this with the hope of another king. For God's promises to David are still alive. Remember, God promised David in 2 Samuel chapter 7 that one of his sons would sit on his throne. That in the book of Kings, he said he would not let the lamp of David go out. He's paired this hope of another exodus with the hope of another king like David. 
son of David, is still alive. Jehoiachin is not a eunuch. So the hope of a king from David's line remains alive. God has forsaken Judah, but he has not forsaken his promises, nor has he really in any ultimate sense forsaken his people. Do you hear the faint message of this book? To those readers who are in exile, do you hear what the author is telling them? It's this. It's wait patiently, dear saints. Wait patiently. Another exodus is coming. Another exodus is coming and another son of David will come. And in due time, we know that the people of Judah were allowed to return to their land, to resettle, rebuild the temple. In their return from exile, they experienced something like another exodus. But it was really a faint type and shadow of the ultimate exodus that God had in mind for His people. What is more, a son of David did not reign on the throne. If we're reading our Bibles carefully, we'll know that the New Testament picks up on these two hopes of a final exodus and a final son of David. Right? The New Testament opens picking up on the hopes of the conclusion of the book of Kings. The New Testament opens with Matthew's gospel and Matthew's genealogy. The New Testament opens telling us that Jesus is the great son of David and that we've been waiting for, the one we've been waiting for, Matthew 1.1. And Luke's gospel, in his transfiguration, Jesus spoke about his exodus. Luke chapter 9, verse 31. The hopes fostered at the end of 2 Kings have been fulfilled in Jesus Christ. He has come to save God's people from, his, from their sins. We have been ungodly. We have rebelled against the one true God. We have not worshipped as we ought. We have no wealth of righteousness. Our sin has stripped of us of any claim to the riches of righteousness in God's sight. We deserve to be crushed by God's burning wrath. And we deserve to be exiled eternally from God's presence. But the good news of the Bible is that the Lord Jesus Christ, the faithful Son of David, has been perfectly obedient to God the Father. He gives the riches of His righteousness to all of those who would ever turn from their sins and place their faith in Him. He credits them His righteousness. He was bruised for our transgressions. And as the prophet Isaiah says, He was crushed for our iniquities. He has undergone the fiery wrath of God for us and for our salvation. He was exiled from the land of the living and forsaken by God for us so that we wouldn't experience that judgment. That is what He endured when He died on the cross. Jesus took our burden of sin into the grave and after He was buried for three days, He buried the record that stood against us by triumphing over death and by getting up from the dead. And now, having been raised from the dead, our great son of David, after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Remember Jehoiachin? He held the highest seat, what were the last words? As long as he lived. Which means what? He died. But Jesus, he was given the name above every name in his resurrection, and then he sat down at his seat. 
And what is more, He what? He ever lives. He still holds the highest seat and the highest name. And now He holds out His hands to us and He says, Come to Me and be set free from the punishment and power of sin and death. And friend, if you're here this morning and you're not a believer, a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, then I want to invite you to answer Jesus' invitation and so be saved. Turn from your sin. Turn from your rebellion against the Lord Jesus Christ and trust in Him as your only Savior from God's wrath. One day, the Bible teaches us that all the nations of this world will fall. One day the kingdoms of the world will become the kingdom of our Lord and of His Christ. And He, Jesus, shall reign forever and ever. Revelation eleven fifteen. Though you may have never experienced the fall of a nation in your lifetime, though you may have never experienced the fall of an empire or a kingdom, one day you are certain to experience the fall of all nations, empires, and kingdoms of this world. Only one will remain. The kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. We can trust our God with each day that He gives us on this earth. The faint hopes of the end of 2 Kings have been fulfilled in Jesus. We have bolder and higher hopes held out to us in the New Testament. And our God will keep those promises to us. Just like He kept those promises at the end of 2 Kings. Go and read Revelation 21 this afternoon and you will find that we have the hope of a new Jerusalem where our wealth is immense where our capital our center is Christ where there is no need for a temple for the temple is the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb and where God's sheep are not scattered but gathered to bring him glory and of that kingdom there shall be no end Let's pray together.